My name is Herb Montgomery, and I'm the director of Renewed Heart Ministries. We are a not-for-profit group that is passionate about rediscovering, following, and helping others rediscover the teachings and sayings of the historical Jesus of Nazareth. We believe that these teachings have an intrinsic value in informing the work of nonviolently confronting, liberating, and transforming our world into a safe, more just, more compassionate home for us all. If you would like to support the work of Renewed Heart Ministries, I'll tell you how you can do so at the end of this podcast. For now, we simply want to thank you for listening. This is Herb Montgomery, and I want to welcome you to episode 170 of the Jesus for Everyone podcast. Actually, last week, I called last week uh, episode 170, and it was actually episode 169. So forgive me for that mistake. Our title this week is Houses Built on Rock or Sand. Our feature text is Sayings Gospel Q 647 through 49. Everyone hearing my words and acting on them is like a person who built one house on bedrock. And the rain poured down and flash floods came and the winds blew and pounded that house and it did not collapse for it was founded on bedrock. And everyone who hears my words and does not act on them is like a person who built one's house on sand and the rains poured down, the flash floods came, the winds blew and battered that house and promptly it collapsed and its fall was devastating. Our companion text this week, are Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had a foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell with a great crash. Luke 6, 47 through 49, as for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When the flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Now, the Gospels of Matthew and Luke each incorporate this saying into the climax of their accounts of of Jesus's wisdom teachings. Matthew lists it as the last teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and Luke includes it at the end of the Sermon on the Plain. This saying is not part of the Gospel of Thomas, however, and, and, and there's a good reason for why it's not, and we'll talk about that. A little background first. Stephen J. Patterson makes a pretty compelling case that the Gospel of Thomas belonged to the region of Edessa, and you can see his book, The Lost Way, How Two Forgotten Gospels Are Rewriting the Story of Christian Origins. And and the imagery in this saying that we're looking at this week referenced the the geography of Jerusalem and the, the literal foundation on which Herod's temple was built. And that imagery would have had no relevance uh, for people who 
valued the the life teachings of Jesus, but who lived in Edessa rather than in in, in Jerusalem. The Temple Mount, or the rock, or or the foundation stone, was highly regarded during the time of Jesus. In the in the uh, Tanchuma, which is a Roman era midrash, uh, we read this this poem: "As the navel is set in the center of the human body, so is the land of Israel, the navel of the world, situated in the center of the world, and Jerusalem is the center of the land of Israel, and the sanctuary in the center of Jerusalem, and the holy place in the center of the sanctuary, and the ark in the center of the holy place, and the foundation stone before the holy place, because from it the world was founded. So this saying this week, it borrows from the safety and security that the culture had invested in the temple even before their exile in Babylon. If we go all the way back to Jeremiah, we find the community using the temple for a sense of of security and safety. Jeremiah 7, 3 through 11 states, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name and say we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. In Jeremiah's time, people were deeply violating social justice, and and yet they believed that that, that they were safe from God's judgment simply because they possessed his temple. And a den of robbers is, is not a place where robbery is committed, but but where robbers retreat afterwards to safety to count their loot. And this is how Jeremiah saw the temple. It had become a place that, that provided the powerful with safety and security while they continued to rob the poor. And the details were different by the time of Jesus, but the principles were very similar. Well, once again, the temple had become the center of a political, economic, and religious system that was exploiting the poor. And, and, and again, the, the temple was the, the foundation on which many built their trust and their sense of security. And Josephus' writings show us just how much people valued Herod's temple. Uh, a perpetual sacrifice uh, kept the fire on the temple always burning. Even during the, the Roman-Jewish war between 66 to 69 CE and, and the siege and the raising of Jerusalem in 70 CE, priests kept the, the, the temple fire burning by maintaining continuously a sacrifice on the altar, thus assuring Jerusalem and and, and, and it's, uh, it's obstinate, being obstinate in the face of, of, of a city burning down around them, that they would emerge victorious nonetheless.
nonetheless in the face of the the Roman siege. So so they kept their their fire burning to to honor uh, the interpretation of Leviticus six thirteen, which it states the fire must be kept burning on the altar continuously; it must not go out. And you can also find this kind of behavior in Second Maccabees one nineteen through twenty two. But the temple's ever burning flame in worship to Yahweh symbolized to them uh, a continually maintained divine favor, even during the last war. You can find this in uh, Josephus, the limitation of Josephus in, in Josephus's Jewish war, and I'll put a link to that in this week's e-site. The darts that were thrown by the engines came with that force that they went over the buildings and the temple itself and fell on the priest and those that were about uh, the sacred offices, insomuch that many persons who came thither with great zeal from the ends of the earth to offer sacrifices at this celebrated place, which was esteemed holy by all mankind, fell down before their own sacrifices themselves and sprinkled that altar, uh, which was venerable among all men, both Greeks and barbarians, with their own blood. The dead bodies of strangers were mingled together with those of their own country and those of profane persons with those of the priests, and the blood of all sorts of dead carcasses stood in lakes in the holy courts themselves. This uh, cultural history sheds light on on why Jesus, uh, uh, his attempts to halt the daily sacrifices when he cleared the temple of merchants, uh, why it was so offensive to them, uh, uh, both politically and, and economically and religiously. And it also explains why Emperor Titus didn't just aim to subjugate Jerusalem when he ordered the city razed, but, but also sought to destroy the temple itself. The morale, the optimism, uh, the assurance of divinely affirmed victory among the Jewish people in their revolt had to be extinguished. And the best way to do that was to uh, attack the, the, the building, the sacred building upon which their, their sense of security was, was founded. In the saying that we're considering this week, Jesus is standing in the critical tradition of the prophet Jeremiah. He's, he's being very Jewish. And, and, and as, as well as he's encouraging fidelity to Yahweh, but Jesus is calling his audience to prioritize practicing social justice, his, his ethical teachings, over mere possessing religious objects. And today, some Christians, I think, need the same reminder. We, we may not have a temple, but we might have a, a pet doctrine, which we think sets us apart from other members of the human family, or a belief that, that in our own mind makes God regard us as exceptional. Uh, but both Jeremiah and Jesus, they state that we should rather emphasize justice for the foreigner among us and those who are vulnerable in our, our socioeconomic, political, or religious order, and the, the innocent being exploited uh, by, by privileged people. In the patriarchy of Jeremiah and Jesus's culture, this focus would have meant serving the fatherless and the widow. And we today have to figure out who uh, the, 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 the vulnerable are in our present order and, and stand and work alongside of, of them. Jesus uses this saying to, to center his teachings rather than uh, uh, the trusted sacred temple. And perhaps Jesus also wanted us to regard his teachings as sacred as the temple and the rock beneath it that his, his audience revered. Jesus grew up in, in the wake of, of political insurrections by various Jewish factions uh, right after Herod's death. And I, I believe he knew all too well uh, the result of armed revolt against Rome. And Josephus describes how Rome squelched these liberations 
liberation movements in Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. And the most immediate example uh, when Jesus was a child would have been the destruction of, of Zephorus, uh, which was a town a, a few miles north of Nazareth in, in 4 BCE. And Josephus writes, in Zephorus, also a city in Galilee, there was one Judas, the son of the, that arch robber Hezekiah, who formerly overran the country and had been subdued by King Herod. This man got no small multitude together and broke open the, the place where the royal armor was laid up and armed those about him and attacked those who were so earnest to gain the dominion. Rome's action in response to this, by the way, that's from Jewish War, uh, Book 2, Chapter 4, Paragraph 1, and I'll, I'll put references to all of these Josephus quotes in uh, this week's Esai, but Rome's action was swift in response to this. A portion of the army uh, went to Zephorus, and, and when they uh, took the city, Josephus says they took the city Zephorus and burnt it and made slaves of, it, of its inhabitants. And the rest of the army moved through Samaria and then on to Jerusalem, where there were more insurrectionists, and, and they were burning and plundering any town or village that posed a threat. And once at Jerusalem, they, they attacked those who had been uh, the authors of, of this commotion. They caught uh, great numbers of them, Josephus says, and those that appeared to have been at least connected or concerned in these tumults, uh, the Syrian governor uh, Varus, he put them into custody, uh, but it says, but such as were guilty, he crucified, and these were in number about 2,000. So 2,000 were crucified. Stop, stop and ponder the magnitude of that number for a moment. 2,000. Rome's practice in, in responding to revolt and insurgencies, it, I think, is reflected in, in the speech that Tacitus attributed to, to uh, Calgacus in, in uh, decades later. This is from uh, Agricola 29 through 38, um, in this, this speech that is attributed to him. The yet more terrible Romans, from whose oppression escape is vainly sought by obedience and submission, robbers of the world, have Having by their universal plunder exhausted the land, they rifle the deep. If the enemy be rich, they are rapacious. If he be poor, they lust for dominion. Neither the east nor the west has been able to satisfy them. Alone among men, they covet with equal eagerness poverty and riches. To robbery, slaughter, plunder, they give the lying name of empire. They make a desert and call it peace. Uh, they, they make a desert and call it peace. This, this description adds haunting nuance to Jesus' saying, take up your cross and follow me. Uh, Josephus again tells us, uh, he ends this section on, on the governor of Arras and putting down the uprisings in, in Zephorus and in Samaria and in Jerusalem. It says he once he did this, he returned to Antioch. So this was the political environment Jesus grew up in. Jesus wouldn't have needed supernatural natural talent to listen to the spirit of Jewish violent anti-Roman sentiment and to see where it would all lead. And I, I believe that Jesus was endeavoring to prevent this and, and prevent this end, this result, by offering those around him a, a different course, a, a different way. And you can find that language used in Matthew 7, 12 through 14. But even if the end that he foresaw uh, couldn't be avoided, even if Jerusalem was too far 
gone. Jesus contrasted his teachings and, and the alternate way with the rock that the temple was built on. And the message to his own community was that only his teachings could intrinsically assure them of, of weathering this political storm that was ahead. And this leads me to one of the, the central questions for my own journey personally. Through everything that I've, I've experienced and learned over the years, I cannot shake the question of whether the teachings of Jesus, the historical Jesus, distilled from their first century Jewish Roman context and applied to the, the social storms of our own day, wh- whether those teachings could liberate us as they, they sought to liberate his first century followers. And of course, the details and the context are, are different. But, but when I consider that his teachings on nonviolence as opposed to violent revolution or his teachings on mutual aid and resource sharing and his teachings about getting uh, loose from an opponent while you're on the way, and we're going to get to this in Q12, 58 through 59, all these teachings, they, they show me a, a narrow path of survival on the way to the ultimate hope of a new human society, what, what King called a beloved community. In the beloved community, the human family has learned to relate to one another in a very different fashion than, than what was practiced in the first century or that is practiced today. And first, we must understand what Jesus said in his first century Jewish socio-political, economic, and religious context. And then comes the hard work of distilling the principles behind this statement. And lastly, we must rightly apply and, and practice those principles today. And rightly applying the principles and, and teachings of Jesus may be the hardest part in this process. So again, for all of you who believe that the sayings of Jesus have an intrinsic value in informing the, the nonviolent confrontation, the liberation, and the transformation of our world into a safe, more just, more compassionate home for us all, and for all of you who are working hard in your own way toward this end, I hope that our saying this week encourages you. We have a, a societal storm that's on the horizon, and, and Jesus' first followers, they faced a, a, a storm as well. And in our practice, let's build on bedrock and, and not on sand. Everyone hearing my words and acting on them is like a person who built one's house on bedrock, and the rain poured down and the flash floods came, and the winds blew and pounded that house, and it did not collapse, for it was founded on bedrock. And everyone who hears my words and does not act on them is like a person who built one's house on the sand, and the rain poured down, and the flash floods came, and the winds blew and battered that house, and promptly it collapsed, and its fall was devastating. Heart group application this week. This week, I'd like you to uh, pick out one of the sayings of Jesus that you have experimented with over the past few months. And if you don't have one, stop right here. Don't even go to number two or number three. Pick one and begin experimenting. And then number two, reflect. How has your life changed from this practice? And how have others' lives changed from your practice? And then number three, identify the impact. What what has been the, the positive result of your practice? Or what have been the positive results of your practice? And what would have been the, the negative fallouts as well? And discuss these outcomes, both positive and negative, with your heart 
heart group in the upcoming week. And to each of you out there who are endeavoring to put into practice the the teachings of the historical Jesus, keep living in love till the only world that remains is a world where only love reigns. I love each one of you dearly. Thank you so much for walking alongside us on this journey. I'll see you next week. once again for listening. Everything we do here at Renewed Heart Ministries, even our our many educational events that we do in various venues is for free. If you'd like to support our work, you can make a one-time gift or become one of our monthly contributors by going to RenewedHeartMinistries.com and clicking on the Donate tab on the top right. Or you can mail your contribution to Renewed Heart Ministries, P.O. Box 1211, Lewisburg, West Virginia, 24901. And make sure you also sign up for our free resources. And remember, every little bit helps. And and as always, anything that we receive over and above our annual budget, we happily give away to other not-for-profits who are are making both systemic and personal differences and significant differences in the lives of those who are not presently benefited by the status quo. And to those of you who are already supporting the work of Renewed Heart Ministries, thank you so much. Your generous support makes it possible for us to exist and to continue being a presence for positive change in our world. So with all of our hearts, thank you. Together, we are making a difference till the only world that remains is a world where only love reigns.